over a span of 2,000 years, 40 authors on three different continents and in three different languages penned 66 books, all of which were supernaturally inspired and intricately designed as God's revelation to man. The spoken word of God, living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, recorded and bound just for us. Join us on a journey from Genesis to Revelation, all 66 books, the big book, cover to cover. This is Michael Easley in Context. We are thrilled to have Dr. Mark Bailey on the broadcast today. Dr. Bailey is now the chancellor at Dallas Theological Seminary. Pause for a moment of silence. My alma mater, after 19 years as the president, he was the fifth president of Dallas Seminary. He continues his role as the senior professor in the Bible Exposition Department. How are you going to do that? You know, as long as they'll let me. Okay. I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> as long as let me. Besides his time at Dallas Seminary, he's pastored churches in Arizona and Texas. He was a seminar instructor with Walk Through the Bible for 20 years. He is in high demand as a Bible conference teacher and preaching engagements. He's preached for me on occasion here in Nashville. And I think you came up to Emmanuel. Didn't you come up to Emmanuel once or twice? I was at Emmanuel after you left. After I left? Uh, okay. Well, sorry about that. No, no. (laughs) (laughs) We've done ministry together. We've been to Israel together. Mark has been all over the world, Venezuela, Argentina, Hungary, and China, regularly leading tours in Israel, Jordan, Egypt, Turkey, Greece, and Rome. He is on the board of Bible Study Fellowship, Walk Through the Bible, and Word of Life. And he's my friend and brother. Thanks for doing this, Mark. That's the most important, the last one. Yeah, we're having fun together, aren't we? Well, we are in this big book series, going through each book of the Bible, one Sunday at a time. And then after I teach the sermon, I get a subject matter guru expert like Dr. Bailey to help me and clean up all the things I should and shouldn't have said. By the way, uh, Mark has written a number of books, but most interestingly, there's a book called A Theology of the New Testament. And chapter seven is called A Theology of Paul's pastoral epistles. And I remind you, we typically put First and Second Timothy and Titus as pastorals because they're written to an individual as opposed to the churches in Philippi or the churches in Galatia or the churches in Corinth. And so we call them that. They're also intimate. They're also personal. Uh, he's talking to a young man, younger man. And so we group these together in many commentators over the years have called them the so-called pastorals. We also have the prison epistles. But anyway, so Mark has agreed to chat with us about First and Second Timothy, and let's just dive in. Give me a little your sense of Timothy. We know a little about him, but you've done some pretty in-depth study. Who is this? He's probably in his 40s, you think, maybe, when Paul's writing these to him? Yeah, I would think that he's a fairly young man. He was the son of a Greek father and a Jewish mother, according to Acts, and a native of Lystra which was one of those uh, early cities of Paul's journeys. And uh, obviously, as we see in both First and Second Timothy, he was greatly influenced by his mentors, not only Paul, but his grandmother, Lois, and his mother, Eunice. So he evidently was converted to Christ on Paul's first missionary journey and uh, becomes uh, obviously a son of the faith and therefore one into whom Paul's pouring his life and ministry. And uh, so we've got, we've got this great generational baton past going on in these books. When I was teaching through these, Mark, I mentioned, you know, the importance of your grandmother and mother's prayers and how many of us, I mean, only Mm. eternity will tell, had grandmothers praying for their grandchildren who came to Christ in no small part because of those prayers and, you know, marriages that were held together and wayward grandchildren that got on. I mean, that's true of Cindy's grandmother. I think Mm -hmm. in no small part, I truly believe in God's scheme somehow, Meemaw Sherwood's prayers for Michael Easley before he was a Christian uh, had some influence. I don't understand it all, but I really believe that. So I agree. I agree. I uh, married into an incredible family, as you know, the Green family. <laughs> and uh, mom and dad Green, fountainhead of a family now, 14 grandchildren, and all of them are in ministry and uh, walking with the Lord. And none of us doubt that it goes back to that that prayer fountain of mom and dad and uh, on my side as well. So 
Yeah, I agree with you. That's so a, we've got this record here where the elder statesman Apostle Paul is writing this younger man whom probably came to Christ during his ministry, but he goes to the point in pen to write about his mother and grandmother, which I think is a delicious personal, intimate look at this thing. Now, the letter of 1 Timothy and what we know about it, probably Ephesus, right? Right. And to, so, to, to Timothy at Ephesus. Okay. Right. And so talk to us a little bit about, so we've got the apostle, he's had his missionary journeys, he's in and out of prison, he's in and out of sort of restrained home prisons, we might say. And at this point, Timothy is left with some work to do. And there's a lot of discussion about what's actually, I mean, we don't know, you know, bulldogmatically, but what's your sense of why people tend to be a little hard on Timothy, I think, sometimes, you know, mm-hmm. stir up the gift and, you know, get back to work and don't shy away. What's your sense of what Timothy was dealing with based on what we have in these two letters? Some of the major themes that obviously surface through here obviously reveal the, the occasion for the letters. But he was dealing with a a rash of false teaching that is described throughout both of these books that he has to confront, expose, refute. And so uh, he's dealing with enemy stuff coming down the trail as far as that which is opposed to the gospel. He's uh, needing to set things right in Ephesus and appoint leadership. And so in the early stages of a church plant, so to speak, in Ephesus, Paul's asked him to put things in order and uh, teaches him what kinds of character qualities are needed among leaders, as well as how the church ought to function. I like that one statement in there that he writes. One of the purpose statements of the book is so that you can uh, know how to conduct yourself in the household of God. Mm -hmm. Uh, What are the prescriptive teachings and principles on which the church ought to be built and how it ought to function? He's uh, obviously very core to all of it is the clear demonstration of what salvation is all about, the articulation of salvation by grace alone, as we would say, through faith alone in Christ alone. And so the uh, exclusivity of Christ is a big issue in the book. Godly living is a result of sound teaching is another great theme. And we can delve into all of these as you want. But these are, you know, great books on the value of the scriptures, not only to bring a person to salvation, but to equip them for the Christian life and ministry. So that emphasis on the value, but also on the trust that is, it's a trust that's been given to protect, to uh, develop, to hand over to the next generation. And then just the personal aspects, as you mentioned, the mentoring of Paul of his young son in the faith. And so it's probably the most personal of all of his letters, Second Timothy at least, and uh, most mm-hmm. autobiographical in many ways. But he's got uh, Timothy as a young son in the faith that he's developing and uh I love how just for a moment for 2 Timothy as it starts, you know, the opening, we often skip the opening sections, but he really sets him up with what I call prerequisites for good leadership or for leading well. And in that section, he talks about Timothy not being timid. God hasn't given us a spirit of fear, but a love and discipline and sound thinking. And so uh, there's no question that Timothy struggled a, a little bit, we know, with frequent ailments of the stomach. He was asked to take a little wine for your stomach's sake. He's a young man, uh, so his youth is a factor, the opposition against him. 1 Corinthians 16.10 says that if Timothy comes, he's Paul's telling the Corinthians, mm-hmm. see to it that he is with you without fear. So I think, as you say, Timothy at times gets a bum rap for being, you know, this little mealy mouse, but I really think he's like all of us, uh, if we were honest. And Michael, you and I have both been around some giants of the faith that when we get to know him personally, They've got insecurities just like we do, Mm -hmm. you know, and they don't like to be confronted. uh, They don't like to be challenged. And so I think that the persecution that was going on by the state, you know, and by unbelieving Jewish leaders that he was facing, I think he's just natural, normal. And I think Paul's saying, hey, you're young. We understand that. But boy, do you have a job to do? And I think I think the confidence that Paul has in Timothy counters that bum rap that we often hear about Mm -hmm. Timothy. Why would you put him in charge of the church at Ephesus and release him to ministry if you thought he wasn't going to make it? (laughs) One thing that I've kind of sewn together, and it's just teaching these and reading them over and over and over, because he tells him about how to deal with older men, to prove yourself an example, two posts in your speech, Mm -hmm. conduct, love, faith, and purity. And I have a whole message, your speech, what you say, your love, what you show, your faith, what you believe, your conduct, what you do, your purity, what you intend. And I go through this whole thing about... And I back up and go, he had some older men 
who may not have respected him. And it wasn't that he was, you know, deserve a bum rap. It's that he's dealing with some stronger, older men. And Paul's saying, look, you're the one I put in place there. And this is how you, and I don't like the language, but just off the cuff, win over or work with these older men. Prove yourself an example. Then when I read both these letters through that lens, it just makes so much more sense to me that it's not that he was lazy or, you know, backing down his commission if we or mandate, but he was dealing with some, as you mentioned, some powerful men. So anyway, we don't know for sure, but, you know, I often tell people, be careful what you say about, you know, Peter and these people. You're going to see oh, me yeah. one day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, we've all chewed on Peter too much. And yeah. I think his first statement when we see him goes, and how many times did you walk? Exactly. <laughs> Where were you when? Yeah, yeah exactly. That's right. That's right. So let's go now. First Timothy one five. I have tended to passage. appeal. Yeah, tended to appeal. That's the purpose of the book. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Unpack that a bit. Well, that's really one of my life verse in terms of ministry comes out of a conversation I had in Phoenix with a leader years ago, and I'd been teaching the Bible at a Bible college for five years, thinking that Bible teaching was my calling. And uh, the first part of that phrase, he unpacked it for our staff at the church I was serving on part-time back then, and he said the goal of our instruction is, and we were talking about the difference between means and end in ministry. I didn't catch anything else that night except that, because Mm. I thought the goal had been to teach, and uh, that was my job. I was a Bible teacher at a Bible college to teach the Bible. And when he said the goal of our instruction is... It just captured my heart. So that's been a verse that revolutionized my life to realize that the purpose of Bible study is not Bible study. The purpose of Bible study, everything you study, everything you teach is to change the way you love. And of course, that fits, obviously, what the Lord said on these things, hang all the law and the prophets, which are the two commands, the vertical Mm -hmm. love, the horizontal love. And then uh, it's not just the pitter patter of the heart, you know, and the emotional, but it's out of a transformed life a clean heart, katharos kardias, a mm-hmm. catheterized heart, so to speak, mm-hmm. literally. A clean heart, a good conscience. And I love the way that word conscience is built off of being able to hold and being able to handle it together and to be able to hold it together. There's, it's a non-segmented life. It's a life of integrity. And then, of course, a sincere or literally an unhypocritical faith. Faith is used objectively, the faith, all the way through these epistles. But faith in a subjective way. And I think he has the mind, if it's an unhypocritical faith, it's it's the both and, it's both sides of faith held together, what you believe and how you behave. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I like to say the purpose of all Bible study is a life of loving relationships transformed by the power of God. It's a powerful, powerful passage. And that's out of that really came our byline that uh, we've used for a number of years at the seminary, teach truth, love well. Mm-hmm. And that's it came out of that experience and that emphasis. And uh, it's easy to, to study the scriptures and not love. It's easy to love without being a student of the scriptures and to have conviction and compassion welded together. Mm. That's what takes courage. And so uh, that's a powerful passage. He parallels it after he's done a little bit of, you know, reminding him the situation he's in. And then in verse 18 of the same chapter, I command this command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that you may by them fight the good fight. And then he reminds him, keeping faith and a good conscience. And then he goes on to talk about those who haven't, and they've suffered shipwreck, which we may or may not get into. But give me your take on this, Mark, because one of the challenges I think most mature and maturing Christians have is we can't make the flesh better. Right. We have to live in control of the Spirit, Ephesians 5.18, other many passages, under the control of the Spirit in our lives. So I can't just gin up love and a pure heart and a good conscience and a non-hypocritical faith. Help me. How do we, quote, do that? I'm asking the question. How do we do that? Sure. Because i got to rely on the Spirit, but yet I'm also confronted with, Michael, you need to have a pure heart. You need to have a good conscience. And yeah. It really goes to the bigger issue of if— Jesus was right, and he is, obviously, in the upper room with his disciples. Without me, you can do nothing. And Paul says, in my flesh, there dwells no good thing. But then you have all of these imperatives of the New Testament, and it's like, how do I do what I can't do? And so the best way we can explain it, I think, is that I've got to be willing to put myself in a position before God whereby he is free to act 
as he wills and accomplish his ways. You know, the Philippians, he's at work in us both to will and to do. So I come to him dependently saying, I can't, you can, I can't. There's no adequacy in myself. Therefore, I need to put myself in a posture whereby he has, if I can say this, the freedom. I remember Jesus saying, not because of ability, but because of it was purpose. Uh, he couldn't do many mighty miracles in Nazareth because of their unbelief. It's not that he didn't have the ability, but he wasn't going to waste uh, power on unbelieving minds and throw pearls before swine, so to speak, mm -hmm. as he says in the Sermon on the Mount. And so I put myself in a position of dependency whereby God can act and will act to change the way I think, to change the way I feel. All of those things you listed with your great message, and I listen to your message on First Timothy that you've used for commencement services that uh, be an example in these five areas. It's only that God does it that it's going to make any difference. And so it's placing myself in a position whereby God can work his will and ways in my life. And that's that dependency. That's the abiding aspect of John 15. How do you, how do I, how does the average mom, stay-at-home mom with three kids, working parent, how do they integrate that, Mark? Well, I think as what's underlying all of this in the text of First and Second Timothy is through an exposure to the scriptures whereby God is taking his word, transforming my life by the power of the Spirit. And uh, it is uh, saying, God, you have the best way to live. We do have a biblical worldview. And when I say that, we have the only right biblical, you know, a biblical mm -hmm. worldview is the only right worldview. And therefore, what's life supposed to be like from God's perspective? And as you take it, and I love the fact you're going book by book through the scriptures, because I've found in my ministry, as you probably have in yours, that it's amazing that the passages that you have selected for the day on a particular week have so much relevance to that week. Oh, goodness, yeah. And I think the same thing is true in personal devotions, that in fact, what I'm reading is what God wants to say to me. Therefore, this is how God wants to change me. And so I think for my wife is one of the greatest examples. She's She's got a discipline I never thought about having in terms of journaling. And she journals her prayers like her mother did mm. from her Bible reading. Her journaling is her prayers of asking God to do that work in her life. Mm. And it's a transforming experience. And so I've watched it up close. I've watched it in a couple of generations now. And I watch God do it in my own life. That We're in a passage with a group of men this week in First Peter of uh, how do we respond when government's not going our way? Mm. And uh, this is personal for these guys. I mean, these business guys are struggling with, how do I handle when the election doesn't go my way? How do I handle when a policy doesn't go the way God seems to want it to go? And how do we respond in that kind of a context? And everything from anger to frustration to verbiage to, you know, and Peter, in that passage is very particular about how to respond. And so it's personal, it's every day. And I think that's how it works for all of us. Yep. Yep, yep. Let me ask you one more application passage, and then I'm going to go to some of the uh, particulars in the letters. But I wrote this. I mean, it's just an observation. You can clarify or expand on it. Christians are challenged at every place on what we believe. We're blamed for things we've not done. We're vilified with little recourse. And unfortunately, we can develop a hide or lay low mentality or worse, shift from biblical truth. And you and I see this, right? I mean, the prior election we've just witnessed, unless we go back to the Civil War, the division and the vitriol between Christians and evangelicals and those in the same, you know, in your case, seminary, in my case, same churches, have completely different views, how we handle COVID, completely different views. And, you know, we just talked about the unity of faith, you know. And so the challenge becomes how in the world do we help these folks? You know, I don't want to retreat and hide and be, you know, chicken little, and nor do I want to be out in the marketplace screaming and yelling. Yep. Yep. It's a great question. It's a great question. I think, and as I reviewed this for this podcast, I think I would be more tentative, a little more careful on uh, calling out the error that I see. And I think the way we do that is by staying with the scriptures mm -hmm. rather than being pot shotting. And so as I looked at, for example, the heresies that he's addressing in this passage, I jotted down a couple notes that, and all these have sub points and verses that can be, you know, validated, but it was deficient in character. It was a departure from truth, it was divisive doctrinally, and it ended in destruction. Mm. 
And so to point out, and I'm amazed in the New Testament, not one time does Paul or Peter or John mention the name of the emperor. And it's interesting. I mean, if you wanted to point out an ungodly leader in the world, Rome had him, even to the point of deification, you know, of themselves. And yet it's always an exposure of the issues. And uh, it was not personal because they're not the enemy. They're really the focus of our evangelism. And I think that's where we mistake the policy for the person. Mm -hmm. And so to understand why authoritarian, hypocritical, deceitful leadership is wrong, when that gets exposed, the applications to the person are too hard to build bridges to, you know, of uh, their speech is not uplifting, et cetera. Uh, Departing from the truth, he uses terms in this book, wandering and rejecting, uh, falling away and bankruptcy. And I think that's how we expose the error of teaching in our churches, in the culture, what do these things lead to? And I think that's why for me, and you know, you mentioned in your message to your people, these books were so foundational to your ministry. I've come to that same conclusion. In fact, I just got through teaching first and second Timothy over a two-year period to a group of, of leaders in Dallas, mm. you know, executive Bible study, because and what does leadership from a godly perspective look like? It's character-based, and you know, you and I both cut our teeth with Hendricks and the biggest crisis of the church is a lack of leadership, and the crisis of leadership is a lack of character. And character-based leadership is so strong as a theme in this book. Norman Schwarzkopf, I love what he said, and that is if leadership consists of both character and strategy, if you can't have both opt for character. I thought that was pretty mm. pretty revealing. <laughs> you know, I'll take character over skill and competency any day, he said. I think what is the character of leadership and what is what is the character of the gospel? So I think the straight presentation of the wonders of it, apologetics is, is both negative and positive. It's it's refuting error, but it's presenting, as McGrath says, the glories of the grace of God in front of people and displaying it in all of its splendor. So I think that's the heartbeat with which we need to come after this. So people think we're just not angry, but we're not just upset, but hey, these are real dangers. And there's a lot of parenting skills that ought to be displayed in leadership. And why do we say no to our kids? It's not because... You know, it's just a willy-nilly, you know, capricious thought. It's, hey, this is best or it's not best for you. Mm-hmm. And you need to, you may not understand it now. You will understand it, you know, later. And so I think there's a lot of that that's going on in these books that helps us how to posture ourselves. A uh, clear but very hard passage for listeners today, uh, verse 8 and following, still one. We know the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that law is not made for a righteous person. But for those who are lawless and rebellious and ungodly and for sinners and the unholy and the profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers or murderers and moral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God of which I have been entrusted. And of course, entrusted becomes a main theme in this book. But you know, Mark, very few churches would read that passage today, Yep. and even yep. fewer would talk about those terms when we come to immoral men, homosexuals, and so forth. Oh, yeah, kidnappers. Oh, yeah. But yep. it, it's it's a list. I mean, I think I joked in the message about disobedient parents. Come on, you know. <laughs> but God takes well, this you, seriously. Yeah, yeah, you can't read that whole list without finding yourself in that list somewhere. Sure. And I think that's the courage aspect that I've got in my mind, a, sort of a mental paradigm that I've uh, been thinking about over the last few years with our cultural change. And it's a paradigm or a, it's a triangle of, of courage at the top and then conviction on the one side and compassion on the other. And there's times when I show compassion and some people would like me not to show compassion to that kind of a person. But there's also people who want to show, well, where's the compassion when the conviction needs to take over? And I've often said in Romans 1 to 3, if you stop in Romans 1 too early and don't finish Romans 1, 2, and 3, uh, you'll become judgmental towards others that ultimately traps yourself, you know, mm. which is what Paul's doing there. But you're right. And I one of the passages in this book is uh, don't forsake the public reading of the scriptures. I love it. And I, in chapel a number of years ago, I asked, and I, I put a list of these kinds of verses up on the screen, and I said, Will you be committed enough to keep reading this publicly to your people? Mm-hmm. You know, like you just read, will you read that whole list of what God says or what God doesn't say? 
and whether it's the role of women in the church, whether it's uh, the issues of male leadership uh, versus female, you know, ministry, whether it's uh, sexuality, whether it's integrity, all of this, can I just read it? And sometimes we think we can't read it without explaining it away. And I say, no, if you have to explain it away, you're not reading it. <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, will I publicly read these kinds of verses before my congregation and read those in my devotions without saying, no, I don't want to touch that. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, if you can't read this and stay with this, then I think you're doing what uh, Paul's exposing here of what the false teachers are doing. Mm-hmm. You're, you're explaining it away. You're going to other issues. You're becoming speculative. And I think that's where wandering, rejecting, apostatizing, and bankruptcy as a departure from the truth comes mm-hmm. into play. Mm-hmm. You know, interesting you mentioned that. I, I was talking to uh, Rosario Butterfield months ago when mm-hmm. we had her on the broadcast, and she made the comment, she goes, it's not loving if you don't call a sinner to repent. Exactly. It's not exactly. loving if you don't call someone in a relationship that's wrong. And that, I mean, I'm with a friend right now who's gone through a very difficult divorce and he's entertaining a marriage. And, and I said, yeah, I love you, but you need to wait, brother. Yep, yep, and, and I'm probably yep. the only one that's going to tell you that. And I'm, <laughs> I'm not even going to talk about when and if you should ever, let's not talk about yep. biblical yep. remarriage, which is a whole enormous can of worms. What I'm saying exactly. is you need to wait. And the guy yep. wells up with tears. Yeah, And I yeah. go, I'm not trying to hurt you. I'm not mad at you. If you do this, you ask my opinion, but I love you enough. And I've watched this for 40 years. And the same would be true with homosexuality and morality is, you know, look, yeah. I love you enough to say, I don't understand all the nuances of, of why a person is pulled into this and so forth and why they want to identify. But God's love transcends your view of what human relationships are. And you mentioned earlier about it's not capricious when you tell your kids, you know, I use the illustration of making your children brush their teeth when they're little. None of them like to do it. You know, look at the $100 toothbrushes that entertain your kids so they'll brush their teeth, right? And none of them want to brush their teeth. But you and I know if they don't brush those teeth well, when the adult teeth come in, they're going to have lots of issues. And whether you like it or not, this is a good thing to do. And this is much more important than brushing your teeth. This is, you know, this is sin. This is our life. This is eternality. Yeah, I love the passage in John 15 where he says, uh, you are my friends if you do what I command you to. Yeah. You know, and then he says, and no longer do I call you slaves, but I call you friends. Friend. Because, you know, a person who's a friend tells you what the father told me, he says. Mm. And so then the question is, what has God said about, as you said, a lot of people say, talk to me about Jesus, not about Paul. Well, Paul and Jesus agree. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They happen to teach a lot of the same things. And most people who's, who say that haven't read through the Gospels. And found out what did Jesus say about uh, everything from marriage to, you know, to lust, to hate, to, you know, reconciliation, et cetera. And so I say, okay, let's stay with Jesus for a while. <laughs> right, right. And, and then, then you'll find out Paul was just echoing what Jesus said. Well, and had he not picked him, we wouldn't have the missionary journeys and so forth and so on, exactly. you know. So, I mean, humanly speaking, but let's go on in this. I'm having too but, much fun. Let's go on in this. So, First of all, chapter two, I urge entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men for kings and all who are in authority so that, and I always encourage our folks so that therefore in order to just stop for a minute and think about it, you don't have to go to seminary, but there's a purpose or an explanation here that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth. So we're to pray for those in authority. The purpose of that outworking is we might lead a quiet and godly life, and God cares about these people, even those in authority. Yep, absolutely. Absolutely. I've often thought, what was my attitude towards Saddam Hussein? And do I really, did I really want him to become a believer mm. or did I want him to be taken out? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and I understand justice and I understand war, but it comes down to what was, if God has this kind of compassion for all people and uh, who desires all men to be saved, uh, it's a pretty inclusive all. My twisted mind as, goes to the Monty Python skit about, oh Lord, bless this thy holy grenade to blow thine enemies to bits in thy mercy. <laughs> yeah, right, so, Repent because you're going to see Christ soon or not. You know, so yeah, yeah I yeah. know the just war monger comes out in me big time. But you're right. I mean, he died for all. 
Right. And uh, that's, yeah, books on evil and how he allows it and all that are for another time. But it is striking. And, you know, and it also, you know, whether if you hated or like Trump or hated or like Biden, this is a pretty clear injunction from the Lord that you're to pray for men and women in authority, kings and all who are in authority. Right. And that goes back to sort of the efficacy of prayer. There's one of the phrases I've I've asked a lot of really smart theologians, Bible teachers, people that know a lot more than me about this fellowship of suffering. And when Paul talks about that our prayers help, what in the world does that mean? How do my prayers help mm-hmm. in these situations, Mark? Well, two things. James says you have not because you ask not. So there's something in the process of God's sovereign design that prayer is effective to accomplish his will. But I think the other side of it is interesting that praying this way, he says, when you pray this way, the purpose is that you might lead a tranquil, quiet, godly, and dignified life. And so it's interesting that when I pray for them, God works in me. Well, I've argued for years that prayer really is God teaching us to you know, whatever we need to learn. And he's not sitting there going, okay, I like that. I think I'll do this for you. It's more, yeah, yeah, you're aligning yourself, which uh, I love the ACTS, right? You adore him, spend more time adoring him than asking him for the shopping list. And if you, I mean, this morning I had the privilege of praying with two guys in my office for about a half an hour. We went through our little Ken Boa handbook to prayer book. I love so much. And mm-hmm. we just spent the day, we know we went through the whole thing. We took turns, we prayed, we read. And one guy commented afterwards, you know, it's a very different thing when you do it with people as opposed mm-hmm. to by yourself. Cause we all love that little book. And we were just chatting about, you know, we're learning about God's character when we're confessing, when we're acknowledging, when we're thanking, because yeah. then it aligns, like you said earlier about exposure to the Bible. I argue, unless you're in the Word, and I won't say every day all we should be, but I'm trying to be kinder as I get older. But, you know, if you're in the Word every day and praying every day and around Christians, you're not going to grow. That's right. You're not going to get aligned to these things. Yep, there's no food. There's no renewing of the thoughts. It's exactly right. Let's jump over to roles of men and women for a, a moment. And I think I may have mentioned in the message about complementarian versus egalitarian. It may not have been in First Timothy, but this continues to be a big issue. And you and I may have a little different experience, but it seems most churches now have moved over to an egalitarian viewpoint, mm-hmm. equal value, equal role, where we would differentiate equal value, distinct role that God doesn't look upon women as second-class citizens, but there are differences in the ministries. Give us the Dr. Bailey thumbnail on, you know, complementarianism and why that's important. You bet. I think if we ever make the mistake of equating uh, position with value, we've missed the teachings of Jesus at the core level with his disciples because they thought position equaled value. They want to sit on the right and left. And he said, you don't understand. That's the way Gentiles think. And a servant is the greatest of all. So the role of a servant is the voluntary submission of oneself to meet the needs of another person. That's the greatest role. And so I think the issue of value and equality muddies the whole water. Mm. I was sitting on a plane, I think coming to Atlanta years ago, and the lady next to me was a Roman Catholic. And she was a liberated lady, and so she found out I caught at a seminary. She says, you have women at that seminary? I said, absolutely. We've got some of the finest women in the world coming to Dallas Seminary. And she said, well, don't you think they should be priests? And I said, you know, what does your church think? She says, no, we're not there yet. <laughs> and, and I said, well, I don't think they should be because of uh, biblical passages such as these. And she says, well, don't you think they deserve to be? And I said, well, you believe in the Trinity. And I went to the Trinity as an illustration for her. And some don't like that illustration, but I still think it's a valid one. And and she said, yes. I said, you know, and I want to make sure Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. She said, yeah, I'm Roman Catholic. I said, okay. Do you think that the Son choosing to honor the Father makes the Son less equal than the Father? And the Spirit serving the ministries of the Son and the Father. And so the whole thing that divided the East and West Church, you know, back then was the role of the spirit in functioning with the father or the son and the the doctrine of procession. And so deep, even in Roman Catholic theology, this concept of the father, the son, and the spirit have distinct roles uh, within the Trinity, but equal honor and equal deity. And I think that's, for me, that role of what's the 
work of the Spirit, the work of Christ, the work of the Father, while they're all in harmony, they're not identical. And so different function for different purposes has nothing to do with value or position of authority. It has everything to do with functionality. Mm. And uh, really fine with husbands and wives and that compliment. We often forget that children are in that same headship yeah. relationship. Yeah. And we would never say that they have equal authority to the parents. Even in an egalitarian mentality, that breaks down somewhere. So I'm with you. I think the passage is clean and clear. It's not easy in some respects. But I, I think one of the mistakes that we make is we take the word silence and drive it home hard in verse 11 of that passage, but that's the very same word for the men in how they function within the culture up in verse two, the word for a quiet life, uh, mm. and so the issue is really a dignified restraint that allows me to fulfill the function God wants me to fulfill. My wife is probably the biggest advocate for complementarian. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and if you knew my wife as, uh, and I know yours to some extent, but if you know Barbie, like I knew Barbie, She's more gifted. She's more godly. It has nothing to do with any of that. It has everything to do with what's the position God asked us to fulfill. And ironically, God didn't ask the wives to give up their lives for their husbands. He asked it the other way around. And so it's interesting that when you really flesh out those passages on husband-wife relationships, it's a mutual submission to assume the roles that God has assigned, which takes submission to godly authority, even to fulfill leadership roles, as you know. Mm-hmm. And so I'm with you. And again, I come back. Are we willing to read this passage just straightforward without comment in a public setting and uh, verses nine through 15 of chapter two and say, here's the word of God, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, and we say, thus is the word of God. And uh, if you can't just read it and say that you have to say, but, 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 and redefine it and rearrange it. And I think the order of creation and the order of the fall are his arguments. Mm-hmm. You know, verse 15 is a tricky one, obviously. What does it mean to be saved? But I think in the context, it's saved from the same sin that Eve committed. And that Adam, that showed it in essence, here's what would have saved Eve's skin had she not done this. Here's what Adam would have done if he had done it rightly. Because he wasn't deceived. She was deceived and he wasn't. I love the, in the whole argument of complementarian and egalitarian, I love the, you know, who committed the first sin? It was Eve. On whom did God place the authority of sin and the fall of man mm. was on Adam. Adam. yeah. And just the guilt factor is, I think, God's statement of, who did I put in the role of leadership? Because she sinned first, and then she gave to Adam and he ate, but it was through one man, Adam, sin entered in the world. Right. Why is the headship of sin on the man when the woman sinned first? That when I'm saying it in love with a bunch of ladies, I say, right. ladies got away with it, trust me. <laughs> <laughs> well, and... I, I think, I, often, I wouldn't say that very far. Right, no, I know. I, I, I often, say it in jest. Often appeal to the so-called egalitarian passage, and you know, you mentioned the earlier Ephesians uh, five twenty-one, mutual submission. I go, wait a minute, that's not what that passage says, because you've got this hierarchy, and the one I always point to is Christ in the church. Yeah, yeah, and I go, yeah. when in any committee meeting does the church committee sit down and say, Jesus, you need to submit to us? Right, right. This is mutual. Exactly. As opposed to, no, this is his church for whom he died. The church must submit to him as the head. And then, of course, you know, you get the theological, you know, stratosphere trying to explain that one away. All right. Well, I'm having too much fun. We got to keep going here. Let's talk about the role of elder today. Trustworthy statement, episcopos, presbyteros, and overseer. I argue that above approach is the primary terminology, and then all these things unpack what that means. He's mm-hmm. squeaky clean. Uh, we have this also in Titus. We have First Peter, a little reference to us. Still applicable today, Mark? I believe so. Yeah, I think, again, it's how you read these books. This is how you conduct yourself in the household of God in these pastoral epistles. And so I think these are the God-given offices that ought to lead the church. And so uh, the overseer, the episcopos, who has, you know, the duties of presbyteros, you know, you've got three words that really are used synonymously and interchangeably in the New Testament. And I think we fuzzed it in terms of our modern terminology, but it's Mm -hmm. elder, it's bishop, and it's pastor. But we've called everybody pastors, but in reality, when you put the passages together, the role of a pastor, the shepherd, is always given to these leaders, uh, these overseers. And so uh, I think these are very applicable. I think these ought to be 
the standards, the high standards of character qualifications and also ability, ability to teach, for example, able to teach. And I think these are the biblical qualifications for godly leadership for our churches today. When you step back on First Timothy, two or three other things that you know really grab your attention that you say, you know, this stands out to me. Mm-hmm. I think it's the leadership, but I think also the relationships. As he goes on and talks about the relationships in First Timothy, how do you relate to older men? How do you relate to older women? How do you relate to younger men, younger women? How do you care for widows? How do you deal with slaves and servants? How do you deal with the rich? And so you have these character that he identifies of this is how relationships function within the church as well. And how do you confront a leader, for example? And boy, you and I have both watched leaders not be confronted to their own doom and dismay of the church, and unfortunately, but we've also seen leaders attack unrighteously on the voice of one person without evidence. And so I think that there's really practical aspects of, of how do you function within the church of God, from leadership all the way down to the person who is in an unfortunate role of being a servant of somebody else. I think that to me stands out. The other that stands out is just the preciousness of the task of handling the Word of God, the privilege that it is, the power that it has. Uh, Obviously, in 2 Timothy, in terms of its origin, it's the Word of God, and it's to be passed on to multiple generations. So those are overarching issues that come through that are very meaningful to me. Talk to us a little bit about his injunctions, and I've done some pretty deep word studies on prescribe and teach, because that's a formula and those are pretty forceful words, right? Exactly. In fact, I wrote a paper for the Evangelical Theological Society and delivered it a couple of years ago on Bible exposition. And uh, the terms that are used are powerful terms. They're terms of teaching. They're terms of speaking. You know, preach the word, the great text that's out of the seal at Dallas Seminary mm-hmm. uh, from Timothy. You have it proclaimed publicly. You have the concept of announcing the word that speaks of pointing things out to the brethren. You've got words grounded in good teaching or healthy teaching. So the word teach is used. You've got hardworking in handling the word. You've got all kinds of vocabulary. Exhorting is another one, the parapaleo term. Mm -hmm. You have things about not arguing about it in the sense of the negative side of the treatment of God's word. It has the concept of a testimony, a solemn word that's a a solemn testimony. So these are strong words correcting. You've got the the child correction terminology, the paiduo, you know, it's good for child training and how to do it, rebuking, correcting, reminding. These are all verbs that, uh, how do you handle the word in multiple contexts? And it's loaded. You're right. I love the phrase. I mean, I have kind of a love-hate with it. Take pains with these yeah, things. Yeah, that's right. That's another one. Yeah. Oh my! It's like, okay, man. This immersed. Is, it's going to be yeah. immersed. Or it's going to be hard. Yeah. It's going to be hard. Exactly. Yeah. Instruct though. You mentioned that. Instruct those who are rich. And I often think how many pastors are terrified of talking about money, yep. much yep. less ever you know saying you know contentment is a good thing. And oh, yeah. it's not bad to be wealthy. In fact, you and I know some very wealthy people who are also some of the most generous people on the planet. For sure. And I'll never forget this. One of the early churches I served back in Texas, you know the church. And I remember talking to the finance guy and I said, you know, I, I didn't want to know what people gave. And he said, I said, how do you deal with knowing what people give? And he said, mm-hmm. Michael, I don't have a problem with generous people. I have a problem with people I don't see checks from the stingy people. I thought, wow, what an insight. (laughs) And then as I went forward in ministry, the people that complain most about money were people that didn't give. Exactly. Exactly. Because the wealthy people, 90, 10, maybe. And you watch those people who really love the Lord and they've been wired and gifted as business people and they're generous and they do it quietly. And I mean, goodness, you and I, whether it was at Dallas or Moody or churches or what I'm doing now, it's wealthy people. It's not the twenty dollars a month stuff helps, but it's the men and women who step up and say, no, we're going to give a significant amount to Dallas Seminary. We have mutual friends that have made enormous commitments to Dallas Seminary and Moody, and they love to do it. Yeah. And oh, yeah. and yeah. it's like, boy, they don't love money. They love wealth in order to be generous. Exactly. And then he exactly. says, instruct those who are rich 
in this present world not to be conceited or fix their hope on the certainty of those riches. And, you know, you and I probably both had that privilege to talk to men and women of power and wealth and say, and they come to you and me like we know something. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Exactly. yeah. Like, and, like, and, like we know their world or right. something. That's and, right. And we respect them like no end. But exactly. one of them actually called me out years ago. He he came to me and is a super wealthy guy, and he asked me questions. And I said, what are you asking me this for? And he looked at me and goes, I do my business well. I expect you to know your business well. You're a pastor. You're a teacher. You study the word. I'm asking you for help. And boy, what an important lesson that was to learn. And that's what Timothy was dealing with, right? You got to talk to people about these issues. I have a friend who's been a friend of the seminary, very gracious. And we had a conversation. It was one of those wonderful conversations. Both of us in tears, ultimately, just Mm. out of joy. And, And he said, what do you bring to the altar every Sunday? And I said, you know, and for me, I bring the study from the whole week. I bring my prayers. I bring my sermon. I bring a little bit of offering. He said, my biggest offering at the altar on Sundays is my wealth, what I give. Mm. And he said, God's given me the ability to make money. He's an investor and he invests a lot in gold and metals and things. And he said, I'm like those Old Testament saints. I bring the gold to the temple. And he does it with great delight. In fact, mm-hmm. the biggest check he ever wrote, he handwritten note with, he said, ain't this fun. <laughs> I love it. I love that. I ain't love this, it. Fun. this fun. And, yeah. you know, he's the most humble guy. He doesn't want anybody to yeah. know what he gives. Yeah. He's as private as can be. He doesn't want the left hand to know what the right hand say. Don't ever honor me for this publicly. He said, this is what God's allowed me to bring. Yeah. He said, when I come, he said, this is my best gift. It's the best of my fruits of the labor of my week. And, uh, and I've always loved that, that act of worshiping with wealth mm-hmm. and the loss of the worship because of the wrong use of wealth, what becomes an idol because, or what becomes a servant. And uh, he had it in place. We have a mutual friend, Dave Gibson, as a friend mm-hmm. of ours. And Dave, he was at a church that had four services in Texas for many years. And he wrote four separate checks every Sunday sitting in the front row. And I said, why do you do that? And he goes, and I know him well enough as you do too. And he said, I don't do it for people to see me. He goes, Michael, I don't want to come to the Lord with nothing in my hands. Yeah. Yeah. That's been one of my biggest struggles in COVID is giving online as opposed to when it mm-hmm. point in the service of worship where I could visibly by myself, tangibly, I'm bringing it today. Yeah. And I've struggled with the, uh, cause we're not passing offering plates under COVID. You can give it the door, you can send it in electronically and it just doesn't have the same uh, feel to, you know, and I need to, I need to sit with Barbie and say, okay, let's send it electronically together. <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting you bring that up because years ago, I wanted to go electronic and Cindy goes, no, if we do electronically, it's out of sight, out of mind. I want to, yeah. you know, put that check. Now we've since changed that over the years for mm-hmm. different reasons, but it's still one of those things that you can, you know, you can come, oh yeah, it's like a mortgage is being taken out of your, you know, yeah. your, whatever. It's like, you don't think it's about like, it like, anymore. I just got billed by the church. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And I don't want that to happen. So I, I think what I have to do consciously is at that point in the service when they say, you know, this is what your giving goes for. That's what we've turned it into at our church. Instead of passing the plate, here's the ministry. And they highlight different aspects of the ministry each Sunday. Uh, your money is gone for this during the time of uh, the freeze and the, the homeless, et cetera. And our church is very generous in multiple directions all around the world and to help people understand your money doesn't just go for the lights and the salaries of the staff. It goes for, and they explain that at that point in time, I need to say, Lord, thank you. That's the privilege to which I give. Mm-hmm. And I need to be more conscious in that moment in the, in the service where I could make it an act of worship, but it's, it's sort of like, yep, already gave it that. <laughs> and so I can lose that privilege. Yeah. Let's go to Second Timothy for just a few minutes. Nero is burning Rome, July 64. He's blaming the Christians. Paul's in prison. This is more than likely the last thing Paul wrote. Have you been to, is it a Marma team? Have you been there? Maritime. Maritime, Maritime prison, yeah. yep. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's the spot? I think it's his best of, of spot. It's a good well representation. It's a, a good, good representation. representation. Yeah. If, it, if it's not that, and it's been held pretty sacred over the years, so I, I don't have any problem if it's not here, it's like this, and we just keep going. But it's a dungeon. You know, they've got it accessible where it probably wasn't as accessible back right. in those days. But, yeah, so it's pretty uh, sobering to see where. And then to read Chapter 4 of this book, it's probably cold. It's probably damp. Winter is coming. He fears he wants the cloak and the books and the parchments. He's lonely. He feels neglected. You know, Chapter 4, is there's a cry of the apostle that comes that makes him very human that I think helps us too. Mm, mm. Let's talk a little bit more about 
the message of Second Timothy and why he was moved to write it? I think it's again sort of it's sort of his last will and testament. I think yep. he's back in prison. He knows uh, the time of his departure is at hand. He knows that his ministry is finished, as we see in chapter four. But he's writing to tell Timothy, here's the role of the ministry. For me, one of the most precious passages is in chapter two. And there's some humor that I love to, you know, bring in, especially living in Texas, where he says, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Jesus Christ or of Christ Jesus. The word uh, suffer hardship in Greek is three different words. It's a concept of in the middle of that is the word kakos. Well, in Spanish, that has a more mm-hmm, graphic term. Mm-hmm. But in Greek, it's kakos. Suffer kakos together with me. There's parts of the ministry that are just flat out hard. And there is suffering. And he gives the illustration of the the loyalty of a soldier, the effort of an athlete, the faith of a farmer. And he's got a, some other metaphors as he comes on down through there, unashamed workmen, etc., I think he's encouraging him in the ministry, exhorting him to boldness in presenting the truth in spite of the false teachings. I think it's uh, basically is putting the, if I could say it, it's actually passing that baton to Timothy and say, hey, buddy, it's yours. Hold it well. Take it. And uh, let's continue this chain of custody of the gospel that I've gotten, you've gotten. There's faithful people who will teach others also, as he says in uh Second Timothy two two. So I think that's the basic thrust of this. Talk to us about how we do that, because I mentioned this in the message about maybe overstate a little bit about the banking terminology there and trust as faithful mm-hmm. men. But this is a stewardship we were given. I like the you know imagery of keeping in a finance capacity, and you and I know people who do this for a living. Some of them are friends. Some of them are just people who help us take what little God has given us and leverage it? And how do we allow our savings to grow? How do we uh, manage with great generosity on the one hand and planning ahead on the other hand, uh, that balance of living carefully now and being able to leave things to our grandchildren, as Proverbs says, you know, you're a fool if you don't. So how do we plan ahead and live, you know, frugally and faithfully now? Those people that help us do that and those to whom we entrust that investment or that bank and where we bank our money. I mean, we're really counting on them not to fail us. And I think that it's a trust, but it also is an investment. And I think that concept of the same thing with the gospel is this is something you need to guard, but you don't keep it. You know, so you've got the treasure that you guard, but it's an entrustment that you steward and you pass on. And so uh, it's something you've gotten from somebody else. You're keeping it careful yourself, but you're also passing it, passing it on to trustworthy people. So I, I think that's a uh, that continuum of investment of the gospel. Now, you've taught discipleship for 40 plus years. You've taught courses on it. You've written on it. You've done it yourself. Give us a primer on 2 Timothy 2.2 and discipleship and what it looks like. Well, I think 2 Timothy 2.2 gives you the generational benefits and, and responsibilities that you've heard in, from me in the presence of many witnesses. In other words, here's trustworthy truth that others have said is true as well. In other words, so it's not a blind, uh, I think the danger of some discipleship is it becomes cultic and it's one person's teaching and some of it, we could list a set of ministries that you and I both know where one person has had his take on things that's been taken and repeated and ultimately to people's detriment of being way too narrow or being way too off base. And that's the way cults work, is that mm-hmm. a, a one-person authority. And I think one of the phrases we miss in 2 Timothy 2.2 is uh, in the presence of many witnesses. Mm-hmm. That's a lost phrase in that. In trust of faithful men, who will be able to teach others also. I mean, two things here. In the specific context, it's pastoral. This context here is not the same as discipleship. Discipleship is anybody can come. Huh. And I think Judas, I mean, Judas is one of them. And so... I would never put the 12 disciples in this category as faithful men when Jesus starts discipling them. <laughs> so I think the difference between discipleship and leadership development are big differences. And so this is an entrustment that you can trust to entrust to other faithful people who are qualified and able to teach others also. So I think this is in a genre of pastoral epistle, pastoral development, leading the church. I think discipleship is come one, come all you know, from pre-conversion through conversion to, you know, he chose them, 
Mark 3.14, that they might be with him and that he might send them forth to preach and have authority to cast out demons in that context. But I would never put the 12 disciples in the category of faithful men here. They become ultimately faithful men who take the gospel. But during the development process of the gospel period, they were anything but faithful, as the book of Mark will show you. I'm amazed. We're talking about things that trump tradition and things. We were in a Bible study that I taught not too long ago, and I come out of a Baptist background, and so the pastor fences the table at communion. Who is this for? Who can and who can't drink, you know, and eat mm-hmm. of the bread? Mm-hmm. And I come out of that tradition of fencing the table, so to speak, as it's politely called, and you know, behind the curtain. And then I'm reading the Gospels, and Judas is at the table, and Jesus doesn't come and he can't be. Mm. And I'm going, did I adopt a tradition that Jesus never intended? Mm. Now, there's no question that believers are instructed to handle it carefully and not partake unworthily and bringing judgment on themselves. But that's in a context of believers in the church in 1 Corinthians 11. And so I was so taken back that Jesus allowed Judas to be at the table of the First Communion. And in fact, you know, at that table gave him the sop. And then he goes out, obviously, and it's night and so forth. But I was thinking, if I had been Jesus, would I let Judas take communion? <laughs> mm-hmm. and it sort of brought me up, and I don't know what to think about it. it just That just happened a week, a week or so ago as I thought about that. I distinguish between discipleship and leadership development. Interesting. Let's go to chapter 3 and we'll wind down our time together. This passage, you know, I always hate to say, you know, I love what Hendrick said, you know, this is not what God would say if he was here. It's what God is saying because he is here. But mm-hmm. boy, it's easy to pull this one and say, this is a 2021 or 20, but realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. And I make this motion mark with my fist. I go, I kind of swing it across. I go, another cheery Michael Easley message. And I go, this is another cheery Pauline passage. Difficult times will come. Men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers. That's one that always trips me up. Lovers of God. Although holding to a form of godliness, although they've denied its power, avoid such men as these. Boy, if this isn't easy to apply today, or am I too hasty? No, no, no. And I think it's true then, and I think it's true now, and I think it's only going to get worse. You know, that's the, I love the realism of the scriptures. It doesn't paint a every day better and better, you know, we're getting better and better every day, you know, along the way, et cetera, whatever that uh, mantra was. Well, I am. I don't know about you. (laughs) (laughs) And and, but that is the fun part is that the spiritual growth can go greater while the world gets worse. And those two are not contradictory. Well, uh, I'm joking. I'm getting, I'm honorary and honorary the older I I get, brother. (laughs) I'm teasing. I'm teasing. I understand. I understand what you're making. But But yeah, that will be our goal, right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But, so, but again, uh, back to the passage, I mean, yeah, it's just like, it's, goodness, take any one of these in the vitriol we see on the media or, yeah. you know, right versus left or, you know, even among churches. I mean, goodness sure. gracious. It's like, here's welcome to the world. I've been thinking a lot lately of the message I gave at chapel just, to, you know, in fact, from Second Timothy a couple of weeks ago is up online and it's called a prerequisites for leading well. And the in Christ, you're either in Christ, and this is what most people don't want to accept. You're either in Christ or you're in the world. There's no other location spiritually for a person. Jesus said, you're either with me or you're against me. And First John 5 says that the whole world lies, if I can paraphrase it, in the lap of the evil one. Mm. And I think we forget, we want to think people are more neutral than they are. And while there's levels of criminals <laughs> behavior, there's levels of congenial behavior. If you're not in Christ, you're in the world. And that parallels the James 3. Wisdom either comes from two places, demonic wisdom or heavenly wisdom. There's no in-between. And I think we forget that what we're seeing in the culture more blatantly because of social media and news media that's 24 hours a day, instantaneous to your cell phone, et cetera, we're watching what the world looks like. And it's always looked like that. We just haven't had the exposure to it as much. You know, there's not, I don't think there's probably any sin we see today that hasn't been around, but mm-hmm. we just see more of it mm-hmm. because there's more exposure to it. And therefore, there's a dulling of our senses to it, unfortunately. 
that this is worldly behavior. This is the way the world thinks. This is, you know, it's demonic at its core. It's self-serving. It's as lovers of self. It's uh, who defines good. We hear this phrase being on the right side of culture mm. or right side of history. I've changed it. I think people who think they're on the right side of culture are on the wrong side of history. Wow. In other words, if it's God's way, it's going to be counterworld, as, as Colson used to say. And again, it's not popular. Uh, you and I could name the theologian, you know, the openness of God theology that was spreading uh, a number of years ago. And I, I remember one of these theologians at an ETS, Evangelical Theological Society meeting, being confronted by a godly, humble guy who was a no-name in theology, but basically asked this theologian when he said, God's going to save the majority of people in our world. Wow. Sir, excuse me. He says, I beg you to recant. I remember this. He said, I beg you to recant because Jesus said, few there be that find me. Mm. And I'll never forget what this theologian who's gone amok said. He said, I know that's what Jesus said, but, and I just thought, oh my goodness. Wow. I got to take, I really, I had that, I had the emotional chilling stepping, yeah. stepping backwards to avoid the lightning. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because it was, I know that's what Jesus said, but. I just can't help think God wouldn't save the majority of his creation. Mm. And you're thinking, wait a minute, Jesus called it. You know, he's a realist. It's tough to be biblical and stay relevant. As you remember, Hendricks' quote of John Stott, you can be relevant without being biblical, or you can be biblical without being relevant, but to be biblical and relevant, that's the challenge. And you're right, this is stuff that it's got newspaper all over it, mm. or news media. So I'm going to get this quote there. right. If you're on the right side of culture, on the wrong side of history, I think so, because wow. the right side of culture would be the world and the yeah. way the world thinks. But the right side of history is God's history, See, not, I, not human history. I think I'm always getting on, well, I am, Henri, because I feel like a dinosaur, this whole engage the culture type of language and embrace it. I'm like, wait, I understand, you know, being a friend to my non-Christian neighbors and so forth. I get reaching out to people, but engage a segment of the culture or population and love them and understand their thinking and understand their, you know, and I'm like, where is this in the Bible, Mark? Yeah. I would say if you have engaged without evangelize, you've stopped way too short. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. So if I'm just trying to create a relationship of engagement, then I'm playing friends. Mm. But if I'm wanting to be gentle, you know, those words back there in terms of tranquil, quiet, all of those terms that he says how to pray for the culture with respect and gentleness, you know, as you saw, find in First Peter 3, 15, be ready for an answer. In other words, the readiness is for the answer. The engagement is to give them the right direction. And if you love me, he says, I love you because I'm telling you what the father told me. So for me, friendship evangelism that never gets to evangelism is not friendship. Mm, mm. That came home to me in a horrible, horrible way years ago. I was, I went through this evangelism training thing called Search, and mm -hmm. you know, making friends with your neighbors. And I'm a personable guy; I can make friends. And long, long story short, made friends with this guy when we were attending seminary in Dallas, and I was a young punk. And um, you know, I helped this. He was an elderly man, and I helped him on his car a few times. And anyway, I hadn't seen him for a while, and I saw his wife one day carrying groceries, and I went over to help her, and I said, I hadn't seen uh, your husband in a while. And she said, oh, he passed like three months ago. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. talk about that visceral emotion. I, w I went mm -hmm. back to my little duplex, and I cried. And I went, Lord, yeah. I, ne I was his friend, but I never stopped and told him about the Lord. Yeah. And, um, yeah. and I told the story recently at our little church where, you know, I got this friend that he's a physician in his seventies and we've been friends and we spar theology. He knows the Bible really well. And we had spent a Thursday afternoon over lunch sparring about, he didn't believe in miracles and he didn't believe in, you know, they can all be explained away medically. And I said, what, what about water to wine? What about, oh, yeah, that's just, that's sleight of hand. That's mis misrecorded. And I said, okay, what about the resurrected Jesus Christ? And he goes, well, there you got me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I said, okay, time out. Let's go backwards. Yeah. That's a kind of a big one compared to water that's to wine. And we had we had a great conversation and I've shared the gospel with him a number of times and he was a friend. I loved him and he loved me. And that was Thursday and I got a call Sunday night. He's dead of a heart attack. And mm. it was just it rocked my world and it's like, okay, you know, we're supposed to share this Lord, but the cool part about it, it's not transactional. It's his working. Right. It's just That's using right. us. 
Anyway, I'm off in the weeds. Dr. Mark yeah. Bailey, the chancellor of Dallas Theological Seminary, where he served for 19 years as the fifth president, and he continues to teach and preach the Bible. And as you can tell, he knows the word well. Mark, thanks for coming on the broadcast, and uh, we'll probably bother you again another time. Michael, I love it. Love what you do. Appreciate your friendship. Thanks for staying faithful in the ministry. That means a lot, my friend. We're trying. <laughs> you betcha. You okay. Betcha. Blessings, sir. Have a good one. Thanks. Did you know that In Context is fully funded by our listeners like you? If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is produced by Hannah Seymour, mixed and mastered by Sonamorphic, and music composed by Chad Cates and Blair Masters.